0: Luke chapter 19, (laughs) I've entitled this message so many things over the years, and um, I thought we're just going to call it Palm Sunday 2018, and when I say it's the most incredible prophecy in the Bible, I believe that this is the most incredible prophecy in the Bible, Palm Sunday, and um, I think any person that has and will be honest um, as he studies the scriptures if they come to any other conclusion that Jesus Christ is the only way that a man can be saved, then they're, they're not being um, true to their own convictions or in their own heart. You know, the Bible talks about men knowing the truth, but they'll suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not that they, they don't get it, okay? They get it, and they understand it. But, you see, by suppressing the truth, knowing it's the truth... they are basically saying, I really don't want no one to tell me what to do, except me. Because we want to be our own lords. I haven't gotten too far into the study, but I think we need an amen right there. (laughs) Um, It is an honor to be able to teach God's word, but especially this morning. And so let's go where Paul was reading in um, Luke 19. We pick it up in verse 36. And as they went, they spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. I'm going to stop there and just interject that Lazarus had just been resurrected. Just prior to this. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these would keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and he began to weep over it, saying, Oh, if you had only known even especially in this your day. The things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come, days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time. Of your visitation. I usually stop there. But I read a little bit farther of the next thing that the Lord did after he makes his statement. And it's just a couple of verses, so let's read them. It says, Then, right after he said this, then he's coming down to Mount of Olives, he went into the temple, and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying, It is written, my house is a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Let's, as we look at this this morning, um, it is the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. It involves one of the most amazing prophecies. In the entire Bible, I would say it is the most amazing prophecy in the Bible. Um, In Luke chapter 19, we have five prophecies um, that will be fulfilled precisely as foretold. The first one, if we go back, uh, the first prophecy that we have in Luke 19 is back in verse 28 this would have been very shortly after um, Lazarus' resurrection. It says verse twenty: When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he came to Bethage in Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples. Say, I want you to go into the opposite uh, village and enter. You will find a colt tied which no one has ever sat on. I want you to loose him and bring him here. And if anybody asks you, why are you loosing him? uh, Thus you will say to him, because the Lord has need of him. So those who were sent departed and found it just as they said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner said to them, what do you guys think you're doing? (laughs) And they said, well, the Lord has need of him. And then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw on them their garments on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And they went, and they spread their clothes on the road. Now let's just stop there, up at verse 35. And, um, wow, it just had to be amazing just to hang out with, with Jesus. You never know. What was going to happen at any given time? Uh, he knew where the donkey was. Uh, he knew that when the guys went up to him to take the donkey, the owner's going to say, "Hey, what do you guys think you're doing?" And you just tell the guy that the Lord has need of him. Now, my mind is thinking, how did the Lord communicate to the guy who owned the donkey to say, "Okay, no big deal"? So they go and they find the donkey. And what's more important here that I want to point out and reiterate. Several times is the importance of it is written, especially when we get to the end of our study. So it is written. This is written in Zechariah chapter 9. It's the first prophecy. So this morning, I want you to turn back in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. And our first prophecy in Zechariah nine nine is about what we just read concerning this donkey, it's not just a miracle that the owner said, go ahead and take him," But it's a miracle because anybody that's ever raised horses or, or donkeys, you know that you just don't go and sit on them. You have to break them. And that wasn't the case with this one. There's another miracle here. This donkey had never been ridden. And Jesus just sits on him and everything's just fine. Zechariah 9 It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. In other words, be happy. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, having salvation, lowly or humbly, and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here it was written that they were supposed to be happy, that they should have been rejoicing. When your king comes, he's not going to come with a lot of fanfare and pomp, and show. He's going to do that when he comes the next time. Another good place for an amen. He's going to come as king of kings. He's going to come as lord of lords. He's going to come on a white stallion that no man has ever seen before. And he will have thousands of his saints, you and I, behind him. That's how he's going to come the second time. How he came the first time is just the opposite. He came to serve. And that should be our first application here this morning. We came to serve. We come to study this book. We come to learn this book so well. Boy, could I get sidetracked here. I saw a program. I was going to save it for Easter, but I'm not going to make it to Easter. We had a party here the other night for our Israel friends, and we had a ball. It was just great. And I went home, and I watched this program. Um, and it was called um, Ancient Aliens, and um, Revisited or something. And it was on a history channel, and I watched two programs, and my mind was absolutely blown away because what I've expected the light to be all along is that the extraterrestrial will be the explanation for the rapture of the church. I'm just going to leave it there for now. I'm going to talk about one of this next Sunday. Anybody see it besides me? Yeah, a couple. I encourage you to check it out. Um, because if you don't know this book, inside and out, you will be deceived. That's how powerful this program was. That's how persuasive it was. They used the gospel. They use the resurrection of Jesus Christ to prove that Jesus was nothing more than anybody else, that he has, we have the same capacities of Jesus. And it completely destroyed in this documentary the deity of Jesus as being God. And, and uh, any millennial out there or anybody that doesn't know their Bible, it would have got me. I'm just being honest with you. It was that powerful. It was that persuasive. I would have been deceived. So when we read in 2 Thessalonians 2 that he's going to send a strong delusion that they would believe the lie, I'm absolutely persuaded that's what the lie is, especially after seeing this program. And believe me, if you don't know your Bible, you would be deceived by it. I better get back to the Bible study, right? (laughs) I told myself back there, don't go there. Save it for Sunday, for Easter. This is not just one prophecy here. Again... The authority that we have is based upon prophecy. There are Bible teachers out there to say, leave it alone. People don't understand it. Pastors don't understand it. They don't understand the book of Daniel. They don't understand the book of Revelation. They say it's too much symbolism. It's only because they don't read their Bible. When you read the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse, certain patterns begin to emerge. Here's one right here. We have in two verses... Two prophecies with a gap between them of 2,000 years. In verse 9, we have the first coming of Jesus. Lowly, humble, I'm a little donkey. But then in verse 10, I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bowl shall be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the millennial. This is 2,000 years when the Lord comes back the second time. Now he's reigning over all the nations. And we have verse 9 and we have verse 10, and um, another prophecy concerning his coming. Let's go back to Luke. Go back to Luke, and we find our first prophecy, therefore, fulfilled. Zechariah said it would happen. And um, Jesus set this thing up, told the guys to go get the donkey. They did. And, um, you know, we we start at the top of the Mount of Olives. It's not the exact path that the Lord took. But every time we go, we walk right down to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then we, we see the eastern gate is blocked up. But, man, talk about having the Bible come alive going down the same path that Jesus, say mountain, I don't know where in a mountain, but somewhere in that mountain, Jesus rode that donkey down there. And the next thing that happened, uh, we find the second prophecy in verse 36 to 38, 36, and they went, they spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And here we have our second prophecy. Let's turn to Psalm 118. 118 is what we refer to uh, there's, there's different kinds of psalms. There's meditation psalms. There's praise psalms, Psalm 150, make a joyful noise unto the Lord with cymbals, with drums. It's all biblical. And then we have what's called prophetic or messianic psalms. Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That would be considered a messianic psalm. Well, Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, or Hosanna. O Lord, I... Praise, said now, prosperity, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's go back to Luke chapter 19. And we find this second prophecy being fulfilled, but especially verse 24. I draw your attention to in the psalm where it said, This is the day, and we will rejoice in it. What was taking place is the people knew that this was their Messiah. And that's the reason they're singing this psalm, 118, because they believe that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Now, the reason um, uh, they were they were not the only ones who knew this, the scribes and the Pharisees also knew this was a messianic psalm. If you look at verse 39... And some of the Pharisees called from the crossing Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They think you're the Messiah. Rebuke them. This is blasphemous, what they're saying. So the Pharisees knew. They knew it was a Messianic psalm. They knew it could only be sung if it was the Messiah. And they told Jesus, Rebuke them because they actually think you are the fulfillment of Psalm 1, 18. And I love this next verse. It said, um, this is is the only time Jesus allows this to happen, where he's allowed to be worshipped as God. And he said, I tell you that if these would keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And we sang that song this morning, even the mountains are going to cry out if we don't. And that day... Was a day that was foretold. This is the day. There's going to come a day in the history of mankind where there's going to be a man riding a donkey, and people are going to start quoting Psalm 118, saying that this is the Jewish Messiah. And the religious leaders pick up on it right away. Say, Stop, stop it, stop it. <laughs> you can't do that. And the Lord says, They can't. It's written, it's going to happen. And he said, if, if they keep quiet, the stones would have immediately began to sing. How about that? I'd lo- wouldn't you love to hear stones sing sometime? No, not a rolling stone, but a s- literal stone. When we're there, I tell the people, pick up, pick up, pick up a stone on, on go, as you go down the hill. And they say, why? I said, well, cheap souvenir. This is one of the stones that didn't sing out. It's free. You take it home with you.'" <laughs> Then we have what I call the roller coaster ride of emotion. Jesus would not allow the people to worship him. This was the first day that he allowed his followers to proclaim him as the Messiah. Previously, he would say something like this, My hour has not yet come. When you study the Gospel of John, seven times he says in that Gospel, My hour has not yet come. His hour has just come. And he allows it. He not only allows it, but he declares, "If they don't, then the stones will." So we read in verse forty. He realizes what's going to happen in the next week. Well, this is Palm Sunday, and um, I encourage you to come out uh, for Good Friday, one o'clock service, and then we're going to have a Resurrection Sunday. What our whole life as Christians is all about. If there is, like it says in First Corinthians fifteen, if there is no resurrection then we're wasting our time. And uh, everything we're doing is futile, meaningless, no purpose. But if there's a resurrection, then it's everything. And it's, uh, it's our whole hope that because Jesus rose from the dead, we're going to raise from the dead. I prefer rapture, but raise from the dead would be okay too. So we, we find that realizing that the fickleness of the crowd He, in verse 40 and 41, as he drew near, he saw the city and he began to weep. Wow, talk about a range of emotion. Going from Hosanna, Hosanna, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Now Jesus is in tears. We read saying, because he knew all too well. He said, oh, if you had only known. Even you and especially, and I have this underlined in my Bible, that this is your day. This is your day. The things that could have made for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And have you um, consider that Jesus knew that very shortly within this week, the mob would turn on him. They'd say, give us Barabbas. What shall I do with Jesus who's called the Christ? Crucify him. And he knew that would take place. And that, as it says in John, if you're taking notes, John 1, verse 11 says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. For a while they did, but he knew that um, he would be put to the cross. But what I want to point out here, because they didn't know that this was their day. This was their day that they should have known And the question is, um, that day was April 6th, 32 A.D. And you say, Dwight, how do you know that it was April 6th, 32 A.D.? And I'm glad you asked me that question this morning. Let's turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Let me lay a little background here. Because Daniel is so precise with speaking of world history and world history, dominating rulers from Nebuchadnezzar to the Medo-Persian Empire to Alexander the Great um, to the Romans. The things that he foretold, see, they happened after the book of Daniel. So critics of the Bible say Daniel obviously wrote the book of Daniel after these events took place. And it's important for me just to take a moment The book of Daniel is actually one of the most authenticated books of the Old Testament, both historically and archaeologically. And it is critical to realize that the book of Daniel existed in document form 300 years before Christ was born. When they took 70 scholars and had the Septuagint, Daniel was a part of it. And this was almost 300 years. And yet the things that Daniel talked about hadn't happened yet. So it's a, it's a fact, and it's important that we settle this right here, that this was written before these events. So Daniel 1, Daniel was a student of prophecy. He was taken into Babylonian captivity. Um, when Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem, he came three different times. Daniel and his friends went the first time. He came back once more after a rebellion, and then the third time he completely destroys the city, and the temple, and Solomon's temple. So if you look at verse 1 of Daniel 9, uh, and in verse 2, Daniel just said, I understood by the book the number of years specified by the word of the Lord given through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Daniel has been there 70 years. So I, I figure him to be in his early 80s at this time, maybe mid-80s probably 17, and he said, basically to the Lord, Lord, time's up. We've served our 70 years. I'm reading Jeremiah, and it said we're here for 70 years. 70 years come. 70 years is gone. Can we go home now? And from verse 3 to verse 19 is a heartfelt prayer of repentance, saying, Lord, we, we blew it so bad. You warned us through Jeremiah. You warned us through the prophets we wouldn't listen. We became worse than the people that lived in the land before us. We're worthy. We've sinned in verse 5. We've committed iniquity. We've done wickedly and rebelled. Even by departing from your precepts and your judgment. And as you read through the prayer, you get this feeling of um, escalation. It builds. Until you get to verse 19 where he's, I can feel the emotion of Daniel. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Forgive. O Lord, listen and act, and do not delay for your sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. And right in the middle of this prayer, he's interrupted by the archangel Gabriel. While I was speaking, verse 20, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, For the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening sacrifice. And he informed me and he talked with me. He said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill and understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, That you are greatly beloved. And um, I have that underlined. And 1 Corinthians 13 says that you can have all knowledge. You can have faith to move mountains. You can have all these wonderful gifts. You have a gift of tongues. But he says, unless you have love, and unless you do the, the things you do because of your love for Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean a thing. Another good place for an amen? Doesn't mean a thing. So what we're about to receive is the most incredible prophecy in the in the Bible. But let's not be let's take it humbly and realize that it's secondary. The first thing that Gabriel tells Daniel, do you know how much God loves you, Daniel? You're greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter. Because God loves you so much, consider the matter and understand uh, the vision. And we find four verses include the following segments. Verse 24 is going to have the scope of what we call the 70-week prophecies, the 77s of of Daniel. In verse 24, it covers all the things that God will do during the next 490 years. In verse 25, the 69 weeks... Uh, and then in verse 26, an interval between the 69th and the 70th week. There's going to be another gap. I'm glad we went to Zechariah 9 this morning because we saw the gap from the first coming, 2,000-year gap, and then the second coming. We're going to see that again between verses 26 and verse 27 of Daniel chapter 9. But let's, um, let's read verse 24, 77s, literally uh, the word there in the Hebrew is um, the word 77s or 70 years are determined or literally 490 year period of time. So 490 years uh, for your people in your holy city, it's going to finish a transgression. It's going to make an end of sin. Has sin ended yet, by the way? No, not as far as I can see, Washington News. To make reconciliation for sin. Has that happened? Yes, that has. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Has that happened? Not yet. To seal up vision and prophecy. Not yet. And to anoint the most holy. So during this 490-year period of time, this is what God's going to do. But notice that um, um, when he's giving this vision, It is for the people of Israel. Notice that the focus of this passage is upon the people and upon the holy city. That is upon Israel and Jerusalem. It is not directed to the church. The scope of this prophecy includes a broad list of things which clearly have yet to be completed. Now the first 69 weeks we find in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command, so we have to have a starting point of this 490 years, there's going to be a command given to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There shall be the seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street will be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So, If the Messiah is going to come after the 69 weeks, the question is, where's the beginning point? And the answer to that is turning to the book of Nehemiah, which is um, closer towards the beginning of the Bible. It's by the book of Esther and Ezra. After Ezra, there's Nehemiah. And I'm going to give you an opportunity because I would like you to uh, turn and read this these verses with me. The beginning point. In chapter 2, we have the king and Nehemiah. He's in Sushan, the citadel, and we read in chapter 1, verse 1. But in chapter 2, evidently, was Nehemiah's. Job to be the cupbearer. In other words, make sure that the king's wine isn't poisoned. His job was to take a sip of it, and if it was good, then he would pass it on to the king. Now we read in verse 1, It came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine, and I gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Evidently, um, Nehemiah was a, a positive guy and um, always happy before the king. And therefore the king said to him, why, why is your face sad? Are you okay? Are you sick? Is there nothing but sorrow of heart? Then I became dreadfully afraid. It wasn't allowed to um, show sadness in front of the king. And he said to me, and May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, that lies in waste and the gates are burned with fire? And then I said to the king, "What do you?" Then the king said to me, "Well, what do you want, Nehemiah?" And I like I like this. So I prayed to the Lord God of Heaven, and then he said, "So <laughs> it was one of those real quickies. It was one of those quick prayers, Lord." What do I say to the king? So I prayed and said to the king, If it pleases the king, and your servant has found favor in your sight, will I ask that you send me to Judah, to the cities of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, Well, Nehemiah, how long are you going to be gone? And when are you going to return? So... It pleased the king to send me, and I I sent him a date that I would be back. Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, I'd like letters to be given for me to the governors of the region beyond the river that they will permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And I want a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertain to the temple for the city, walls for the house, That I will occupy and a king granted to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. The Lord said that from the going forth of the command, Daniel, here's Gabriel talking to Daniel. When the command is given to go forth to rebuild Jerusalem, that's the starting point of the 490 um, years. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 2. Now I'm quoting from the Encyclopedia Britannica. It gives us the month, but it doesn't give us the day. And this is a problem for some people, and I can understand the problem. Here's the solution to the problem. The 1990 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica states that Artaxerxes Logimenus ascended to the throne of the Medo-Persian Empire in July 465 B.C. Now, by Hebrew tradition, when the day of the month is not uh, specifically stated, it is given to be the first day of that month. So, the day of the decree by Artaxerxes was the first day of the Hebrew month, Nisan, 445 B.C. The first day of Nisan, 445 B.C., corresponds to March 14th, this was certified by astronomical calculations at the British Observatory and first reported by Sir Robert Anderson, who was the head of Scotland Yard at that time. Remember that the prophecy states that 69 weeks or 173,880 days after the command goes forth to restore the city of Jerusalem, that the Messiah would come at that time. And if you count 173,800 days forward from the 14th of March, 445 B.C., we come to April 6, 32 A.D. Again, this date was verified by the British Royal Observatory. Let's go back to Daniel really, really quick and put this verse together. Here, we're told, Daniel, understand, when the command goes forth, now we, know, now we have a starting point. Now we have a place to start counting. So we, we find that after 173,880 days after the command to go forth, that the Messiah is going to show up. We can't stop here without going to verses 26 and 27 before we go back to Luke. When the Messiah comes, um, this is verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. The word cut off there to Hebrew is karat, and it literally means to be executed. And you say, you say, What? What are you saying? It says the Messiah is going to be executed. But then it clarifies, but not for himself. Who did Jesus come into the world to die for? For me, for you. And here Daniel clearly tells us what, that after that period of time, that's what's going to happen. And then Daniel is going to quote what Jesus is going to quote in Luke 19 the next thing he says, and the people of the prince who is to come. This is how we know that the Antichrist is not a Syrian. There's a book out there called the, the Islamic Antichrist, and he's not. He has to come from the Roman Empire. How do you know that? Well, because it says so right here. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The Romans did that. And the end of it shall be with a flood till the end of war desolations are determined. Now, this is, um, verse 26. Verse 27, there is a gap between verse 26 and 27 of 2,000 years. Verse 26 has been fulfilled to the day. Verse 27 is still yet future. We read, then he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. How much is one week? Seven years. So basically what I'm saying is what happened is when Jesus was rejected, the stock, the, the clock stopped. You have the, the fulfillment of the days, you come to April 632 AD, clock stops. And it has been not started yet. I believe after the rapture of the church, We begin the last seven-year period of time. Remember, these words are given to the Jewish people and um, the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Verse 24, for your people and your holy city. So God basically owes Israel seven more years. Now, people did not understand this prophecy for hundreds of years. Why? Because right now, this year, next month, They will be celebrating their 70th year of being back in the land of Israel. They were dispersed in 70 AD, but then God is going to keep his promise and work with Israel for seven more years. Let's read the rest of it. He will, this is a reference to the Antichrist, The he here will make a covenant for one week. In the middle of the week, he'll break it and bring an end to sacrifice and offerings. That tells us there has to be a millennial temple and that they will reinstate animal sacrifice. Israel knows all too well in Yom Kippur without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation, which is the term, is poured out on the desolate. Let's go back to Luke 19. You might say we're living in the gap right now. And um, we left off with verse in, in Luke 19, where now Jesus, this is the third prophecy, he says in verse 43, for the day now will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. They missed the day And because they missed the day, the consequences, according to Jesus, is verse 44, And level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, there's an implication here. What's the implication? They were supposed to know the time. (laughs) Like Daniel was reading Jeremiah, he understood, seven years is up, time to go home. So we look at Israel. How interesting. It's 70 years this year. Israel's packed. I was talking to our tour leader um, this last week, and he said, oh, Jerusalem's just a nightmare. Good for business, but traffic jams are just just incredible right now because so many people want to be there this year because it's the anniversary of this. Now, we find um, this... This fourth prophecy here, Jesus now prophesied. He's saying, you missed Daniel's prophecy. You should have known. And the religious religious leaders should have been teaching. They weren't. But because they weren't, Jesus weeps. And he said, you missed your day. What day? The day that Daniel talked about in Daniel chapter 9. To the day. April six, thirty two 32 AD. That's what this time is. And then he says, because you missed it, he goes on to say what's going to happen is Jerusalem is going to be surrounded. And um, uh, we find the city and the sanctuary was destroyed 38 years later when the Roman legions under Titus leveled the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, precisely as Daniel and Jesus had predicted In fact, as one carefully examines Jesus' specific words, it appears that he held them accountable to know this astonishing prophecy in Daniel 9 because they did not know the time of his visitation. They should have known, but they didn't, and the consequences were. And when I first started going to um, Israel, um, they were always Excavating and removing more stone and more stone and getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And they finally got down to the the original layer of the street of Jerusalem that Jesus would have have walked on. And what they found there, after digging all this dirt out, were the very stones that the Romans, um, when they tore down the wall, they're still there. And they they dug them all out, and they're all piled up. They even have one... um, a very specific stone that has a mark on it, the cornerstone that was on the very, very top. It was so valuable they put it in a museum. They got a, they got a copy there now because they don't want anybody messing because of the significance of it. Well, Jesus said there's not going to be one stone left upon another. And that's exactly what the Romans did. It's a fact of history. And um, as a result, we find um, uh, this... 5th prophecy, um, 45 through 48. And the reason I'm bringing it up, I've never done this on a Palm Sunday, so this is a first, 2018. It's taken me almost 40 years to get to it, but I finally got to it. And, um, but he leaves this because you did not know the time of your visitation, and then he goes into the temple, and he begins to turn over the tables. And talk about another range of emotion. What have we had so far? Great joy. Then he's in tears. And then he's so angry he makes a whip. And he starts turning over tables and kicking over the money changers. And notice these words. It is written. Gang, I really want to drive this point home. The significance of when the Bible says it is written. You know what that means? Nothing's going to stop it from happening. Jesus said, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but not my word. And if Jesus says, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer and not a place to try to manipulate people and make money from them. And it was a height of hypocrisy to take a place of that was revered where the holy of holy was and use it for an opportunity to make money. And the ones who were making the most were the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, you could only use the uh, temple shekel. Let's say you came from Rome and you were a Jew and you had Roman coins instead. You can find Roman coins there. Well, you couldn't use that to buy your sacrifice. You had to change it into the shekel with a little bump up in the price. And as a result, they were getting rich off of it. And just as Jesus knew what was going on with the donkey, he knew that the scribes and the Pharisees turning this into a business. And God got upset. (laughs) God got upset. And he's the one that starts turning him over. And the people were blown away by this. And um, they wanted to kill him afterwards, but they couldn't do anything for the people were very attentive to hear him. Uh, This prophecy it is written is if you're taking notes Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7 prophesied also in Jeremiah 7 verse 4 I'm only going to say this once this morning we will close this morning here's my once won't say it again with a parable and a question the parable and before we go to the parable I want you to go back to chapter 19, verse 39. And remember, the Pharisees were upset. They were upset because the people were singing Psalm 118. This is the day. This is it. This is the day that the Lord has made, a very specific day. And the Pharisees said, rebuke them. So the, here we find that um, uh, they're upset because... Psalm 118 is being quoted. Now go to Luke chapter 20. And first the parable before the closing question. The parable begins in verse 9 of chapter 20. Then he began to tell the people this parable. He said a certain man planted a vineyard. Leased it to the vine dressers. And then he went into a far country for a long time. Now. At vintage time or harvest he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard but the vine dressers beat him sent him away empty-handed now i'm going to tell you right here that he's referring to people like jeremiah the prophets who gave god's message to the people but the people would beat him threw Jeremiah into the pit. They they didn't call Jeremiah the weeping prophet for nothing. Nobody would listen to him. And so we have in view here the one being sent, is God sending his prophets. Verse 11, again he sent another prophet or servant. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And so God sends a third. And they wounded him also and cast him out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, I know what I'll do. I'll send my beloved son. Probably they'll respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, huh, here comes the heir. Let's kill him. That the inheritance may be ours. Let's just stop there and go back to verse 47. When Jesus turned over the tables, what did it say they wanted to do? They wanted to uh, destroy him. Now, verse 15 and chapter 20, so they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now the therefore, and whenever there's a therefore, what's it therefore? To explain what previously Jesus is saying. He says, What do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do to them? He's going to come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Now, when the scribes and Pharisees heard this, they said, Certainly not. And I just love this so much, I get tingles reading this verse. Because you just don't want to play mind games with the creator of the mind, right? What does he quote to them? He says, what is this that is written? He quotes Psalm 118 to him. <laughs> I love it. The stone which the builders rejected, that's Psalm 118, verse 22, has become the chief cornerstone. And we find, I just love how the Lord takes what they had a problem with in the beginning and he turns it around and uses it right back at them. And so the parable is explained by the Lord quoting, look, it's been written. The stone which the builders rejected, it doesn't matter. You can reject him if you want to, but he's still the chief cornerstone. Another good place for an amen. Okay, now the closing question. The closing question is, this cornerstone is Jesus, and every person will have one of two relationships with the cornerstone. And we find this in our last verse, verse 18, where it says, whoever falls on the stone, all right, who's the stone? The stone is Jesus. Whoever falls on the stone will be broken. But on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, Jesus brought the gospel. And um, they rejected him. The scribes and the Pharisees wanted to kill him. But many others, when they met Jesus, uh, they were broken. What does that mean? They repented. They were simply broken. They saw their sin. It's like Peter, understanding that Jesus is God for the first time, falls on his face and says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Or maybe Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he was, whoa, is me. I'm in trouble. I'm uh, standing in the presence of a holy God. And he realized his sinfulness. So what does it mean here, whoever falls on his stone will be broken? When you confess your sins to Jesus, You're allowing him to, you're allowing the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sins. And you say to yourself, I need to be broken. I need to be forgiven. I'm going to fall on the solid rock, we sang it this morning, of Jesus Christ. Whoever falls on the rock will be broken. You will be broken. That's good, not bad. I'll tell you what's bad is being proud and arrogant, knowing that Jesus is exactly who he said. Are you going to try to undo this? Prophecy this morning? I challenge you, be a Brian. Don't believe a word I just said. Do your own homework. See if there was a starting point. See if it doesn't come out exactly to the day that Jesus came down the Mount of Olives. And if you think that's a coincidence, then you're an educated fool. Excuse me. A lot of educated fools in the world today. Their own pride. It's not that they don't know. It's that they don't want to be broken. Nobody's going to break me. Nobody's going to tell me what I can and I cannot do. So in closing, I said a second time. Here's the truth. You can believe what you want to. God gave you a free will. I don't believe in Calvinism. I don't believe in Reformed theology. I believe you have a free will. And you can exercise it one of two ways. But know this whatever you believe, it is written. It is written. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You can believe what you want to. But when it says, it is written, please don't allow pride to keep you from coming to Jesus Christ this Palm Sunday. Don't let anything, anybody stop you. Don't let anybody talk you out of it or call you crazy for doing so. No. Um, the facts and the evidence and Bible prophecy all point to this very powerful prophecy that gives us an opportunity while we're still alive. You see, after a person dies, once to die and then the judgment. You'll say, again, this program comes up with reincarnation over and over again that I was telling you about earlier. The idea is if you don't get it right the first time, don't worry about it. You get a couple shots at it. No, you don't. Once to die and then the judgment. Either die broken and forgiven or you die in your pride and your sin. And on the day of judgment, the books will be open, and you will be judged according to every work that you've ever done. That should scare some. It really should. And um, the only thing I can say better than that is amen. amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for that you've given us the privilege of being able to study your word. Thank you, Jesus. That um, your word is so powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And um, thank you that you verify the scriptures. It really causes soundness of heart and mind. But more than that, we can rejoice and praise you for, for coming and doing what you've done, right to the very day. Lord Jesus, this morning I pray for any that have never received you, that they would not be full of pride suppress the truth, but Lord, they would be broken before you and ask you to be their Lord and Savior this day. In Jesus' name, amen.